Chapter Three, a Chronicle of Louisbourg, seventeen twenty to seventeen sixty. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kim Senior. Chapter Three, The Link Recovered, seventeen forty-eight. Louisbourg was the most thoroughly hated place in all America. The French government hated it as Napoleon hated the peninsula because it was a drain on their resources. The British government hated it because it cut into their oversea communications. The American colonists hated it because it was a standing menace to their ambitious future. And everyone who had to live in it, no matter whether he was French or British, European or American, naval or military, private or official, hated it as only exiles can. But perhaps even exiled Frenchmen detested it less heartily than the disgusted provincials who formed its garrison from the summer of 1745 to the spring of the following year. Warren and Pepperell were obliged to spend half their time in seeing court-martial justice done. The Blue Jackets fretted for some home port in which to enjoy their plentiful prize money. The provincials fretted for home at any cost. They were angry at being kept on duty at sixpence a day after the siege was over. They chafed against the rules about looting, as well as against what they thought the unjust difference between the millions sterling that had been captured at sea, under full official sanction, and the ridiculous collection of odds and ends that could be stolen on land, at the risk of pains and penalties. Imagine the rage of the sullen Puritan, even if he had a sense of humor, when, after hearing a blue jacket discussing plans for spending a hundred golden guineas, he had to make such entries in his diary as these of Private Benjamin Crafts. Saturday, received a half pint of rum to drink ye king's health. The Lord look upon us and prepare us for his holy day. Sunday, blessed be the Lord that has given us to enjoy another Sabbath. Monday, last night I was taken very bad. The Lord be pleased to strengthen my inner man. May we all be prepared for his holy will. Received part of plunder. Nine small tooth combs. No wonder there was trouble in plenty. The routine of a small and uncongenial station is part of a regular second nature, though a very disagreeable part. But it maddens militiamen when the stir of active service is past, and they think they are being kept on such duty overtime. The Massachusetts men had the worst pay and the best ringleaders, so they were the first to break out openly. One morning they fell in without their officers, marched on to the general parade, and threw their muskets down. This was a dramatic but ineffectual form of protest, because nearly all the muskets were the private property of the men themselves, who soon came back to take their favorite weapons up again. One of their most zealous chaplains, however, was able to enter in his diary, perhaps not without a qualm, but certainly not without a proper pride in New England spirit, the remark of a naval officer that he had thought the New England men were cowards, but that now he thought that if they had a pickaxe and spade, they would dig ye way to hell and storm it. The only relief from the deadly monotony and loneliness of Louisburg was to be found in the bad bargains and worse entertainment offered by the camp followers, who were quickly gathered like a flock of vultures to pick the carcass to the bone. There were few pickings to be had, but these human parasites held on till the bones were bare. Of course they gave an inordinate amount of trouble. They always do, but well-organized armies keep them in their place, while militiamen cannot. Between the camp followers and the men, Pepperell was almost driven mad. He implored Shirley to come and see things for himself. Shirley came. 
He arrived at the end of August, accompanied both by his own wife and by Warren's. He delivered a patriotic speech, in which he did not stint his praise of what had really been a great and notable achievement. His peroration called forth some genuine enthusiasm. It began with a promise to raise the pay of the Massachusetts contingent by fifteen shillings a month, and ended with free rum all round and three cheers for the king. The prospect thereupon brightened a little. The mutineers kept quiet for several days, and a few men even agreed to re-enlist until the following June. Shirley was very much pleased with the immediate result, and still more pleased with himself. His next dispatch assured the Duke of Newcastle that nobody else could have quelled the incipient mutiny so well. Nor was the boast in one sense vain, since nobody else had the authority to raise the men's pay. But discontent again became rife, when it began to dawn on the provincials that they would have to garrison Louisbourg until the next open season. The unwelcome truth was— that except for a few raw recruits no reliefs were forthcoming from any quarter. The promised regulars had left Gibraltar so late that they had to be sent to Virginia for the winter, lest the sudden change to cold and clammy Lewisburg should put them on the sick list. The two new regiments, Shirley's and Pepperell's, which were to be recruited in the American colonies and form part of the Imperial Army, could not be raised in time. There even seemed to be some doubt as to whether they could be raised at all. The absence of Pepperell from New England, the hatred of garrison duty in Louisburg, and resentment at seeing some Englishmen commissioned to command Americans, were three great obstacles in the way. The only other resource was the colonial militia, whose waifs and strays alone could be induced to enlist. Thus, once the ice began to form, the despairing provincial garrison saw that there could be no escape. The only discharge was death. What were then known as camp fevers had already broken out in August. As many as twenty-seven funerals in a single day passed by the old blind kiln on the desolate point beyond the seaward walls of Lewisburg. After we got into the town, a sordid indolence or sloth, for want of discipline, induced putrid fevers and dysenteries, which at length became contagious, and the people died like rotten sheep. Medical men were ignorant and few. Proper attendance was wholly lacking. But the devotion of the Puritan chaplains, rivaling that of the early Jesuits, ran through these awful horrors like a thread of gold. Here is a typical entry of one day's pastoral care. Prayed at hospital, prayed at citadel, preached at Grand Battery, visited a very long list of names, all very sick, more names, died, and but poorly myself, but able to keep about. No survivor ever forgot the miseries of that dire winter in cold and clammy Lewisburg. When April brought the Gibraltar regiments from Virginia, Pepperell sent in to Shirley his general report on the three thousand men with whom he had begun the autumn. Barely one thousand were fit for duty. Eleven hundred lay sick and suffering in the ghastly hospital. Eight hundred and ninety lay buried out on the dreary tongue of land between the lime-pit and the fog-bound, ice-encumbered sea. Warren took over the command of all the forces, as he had been appointed governor of Louisburg by the king's commission. Shirley had meanwhile been revolving new plans, this time for the complete extirpation of the French in Canada during the present summer of 1746. He suggested that Warren should be the naval joint commander, and Warren, of course, was nothing loath. Massachusetts again rose grandly to the situation— she voted thirty-five hundred men with a four-pound sterling bounty to each one of them. New Hampshire, Connecticut, Rhode Island followed well. 
New York and New Jersey did less in proportion. Maryland did less still. Virginia would only pass a lukewarm vote for a single hundred men. Pennsylvania, as usual, refused to do anything at all. The legislature was under the control of the Quakers, who, when it came to war, were no better than parasites upon the body politic. They never objected to enjoying the commercial benefits of conquest any more than they objected to living on land which could never have been either won or held without the arms they reprobated. But their principles forbade them to face either the danger or expense of war. The honor of the other Pennsylvanians was, however nobly saved by a contingent of four hundred, raised as a purely private venture. Altogether, the new provincial army amounted to over eight thousand men. The French in Canada were thoroughly alarmed. Rumor had magnified the invading fleet and army, till in July the Acadians reported the combined forces, British regulars included, at somewhere between forty and fifty thousand. But the alarm proved groundless. The regulars were sent on an abortive expedition against the coast of France, while the Duke of Newcastle ordered Shirley to discharge the very expensive provincials, who were now in imperial pay, as cheap as possible. This was then done to the intense disgust of the colonies concerned. New York and Massachusetts, however, were so loath to give up without striking a single blow that they raised a small force on their own account to take Crown Royal and gain control of Lake Champlain. Footnote: An account of this expedition will be found in Chapter Two of the War Chief of the Six Nations in this series. Before October came, the whole of the colonies were preparing for a quiet winter, except that it was to be preceded by the little raid on Crown Point, when quite suddenly astounding news arrived from sea. This was that the French had sent out a regular armada to retake Louisbourg and harry the coast from the south. Every ship brought in further and still more alarming particulars. The usual exaggerations gained the usual credence, but the real force, if properly handled and combined, was dangerous enough. It consisted of fourteen sail of the line and twenty-one frigates, with transports carrying over three thousand veteran troops. Altogether, about seventeen thousand men, or more than twice as many as those in the contingents lately raised for taking Canada. New York and Massachusetts at once recalled their Crown Point expeditions. Boston was garrisoned by eight thousand men. All the provinces did their well-scared best. There was no danger except along the coast, for there were enough armed men to have simply mobbed to death any three thousand Frenchmen who marched into the hostile continent, which would engulf them if they lost touch with the fleet and wear them out if they kept communications open. Those who knew anything of war knew this perfectly well, and they more than half suspected that the French force had been doubled or trebled by the panic mongers. But the panic spread and spread inland. For all that, no British country had ever been so thoroughly alarmed since England had watched the great armada sailing up the Channel. The poets and preachers quickly changed their tune. Ames's Almanac for 1746 had recently edified Bostonians with a song of triumph. Over fallen Louisburg, bright Hesperus, the harbinger of day, smiled gently down on Shirley's prosperous sway. The Prince of Light rode in his burning car to see the overtures of peace and war around the world, and bade his charioteer, who marks the periods of each month and year, rein in his steeds and rest upon high noon to view our victory over Cape Breton. 
But now, the Reverend Thomas Prince's litany, rhymed by a later bard, summed up the gist of all the supplications that ascended from the Puritans. O Lord, we would not advise, but if in thy providence a tempest should arise, to drive the French fleet hence, and scatter it far and wide, or sink it in the sea, we should be satisfied, and thine the glory be. Strange to say, this pious suggestion had been mostly answered before it had been made. Disaster after disaster fell upon the doomed French fleet from the very day it sailed. The admiral was the Duc d'Anville, one of the illustrious La Rochefoucauld, whose family name is known wherever French is read. He was not wanting either in courage or good sense, but like his fleet, he had little experience at sea. The French ships, as usual, were better than the British but the French themselves were a nation of landsmen. They had no great class of seamen to draw upon at will, a fact which made an average French clue inferior to an average British one. This was bad enough, but the most important point of all was that their fleets were still worse than their single ships. The British always had fleets at sea, constantly engaged in combined manoeuvres, but the French had not, and in the face of the British command of the sea they could not have them. The French harbours were watched so closely that the French fleets were often attacked and defeated before they had begun to learn how to work together. Consequently, they found it still harder to unite two different fleets against their almost ubiquitous enemy. D'Anville's problem was insoluble from the start. Four large men of war from the West Indies were to join him at Chibucto Bay, now the harbour of Halifax, under Admiral Conflans, the same who was defeated by Hawke at Quiberon Bay thirteen years later, on the very day that Wolfe was buried. Each contributory part of the great French naval plan failed in the working out. D'Anville's command was a collection of ships, not a coordinated fleet. The d French dockyards had been neglected, so some of the ships were late, which made it impossible to practice maneuvers before sailing for the front. Then, in the bungling hurry of fitting out, the hulls of several vessels were left foul, which made them dull sailors, while nearly all the holds were left unscoured, which of course helped to propagate the fevers, scurvy, plague and pestilence brought on by bad food badly stowed. Nor was this all. Officers who had put in so little sea-time with working fleets were naturally slack and inclined to be discontented. The fact that they were under sealed orders, which had been communicated only to Danville, roused their suspicions while his weakness in telling them they were bound for Louisbourg almost produced a mutiny. The fleet left France at midsummer, had a very rough passage through the Bay of Biscay, and ran into a long dead calm off the Azores. This ended in a storm, during which several vessels were struck by lightning, which in one case caused a magazine explosion that killed and wounded over thirty men. It was not until the last week of September that D'Anville made the excellently safe harbour of Halifax. The four ships, under Conflans, were nowhere to be seen. They had reached the rendezvous at the beginning of the month, had cruised about for a couple of weeks, and then gone home. D'Anville was now in no position to attack Louisbourg, much less New England. Some of his vessels were quite unserviceable. There was no friendly port nearer than Quebec. All his crews were sickly, and the five months, incessant and ever-increasing strain, had changed him into a broken-hearted man. He died very suddenly, in the middle of the night. Some said, from a stroke of apoplexy, while others whispered suicide. 
His successor, Destournel, summoned a council of war, which overruled the plan for an immediate return to France. Presently a thud, followed by groans of mortal agony, was heard in the new commander's cabin. The door was burst open, and he was found dying from the thrust of his own sword. La Jonquière, afterwards governor-general of Canada, thereupon succeeded Destournel. This commander, the third within three days, was an excellent naval officer and a man of strong character. He at once set to work to reorganize the fleet. But reorganization was now impossible. Storms wrecked the vessels. The plague killed off the men. Nearly three thousand had died already. Only a single thousand, one-tenth of the survivors, were really fit for duty. Yet La Jonquière still persisted in sailing for Annapolis. One vessel was burned, while four others were turned into hospital ships, which trailed astern, dropping their dead overside, hour after hour as they went. But Annapolis was never attacked. The dying fleet turned back and at last reached Port Louis, on the coast of Brittany. There it found La Palme, a frigate long since given up for lost, lying at anchor, after a series of adventures that seemed well-nigh impossible. First her crew's rations had been cut down to three ounces a day. Then the starving men had eaten all the rats in her filthy hold, and when rats failed they had proposed to eat their five British prisoners. The captain did his best to prevent this crowning horror, but the men, who were now ungovernable, had already gone below to cut up one prisoner into three-ounce rations, when they were brought on deck again just in time by the welcome cry of Sail Ho. The Portuguese stranger fortunately proved to have some sheep, which were instantly killed and eaten raw. News of these disasters to the French arms at length reached the anxious British colonies. The militia were soon discharged, the danger seemed past, and the whole population spent a merrier Christmas than any one of them had dared to hope for. In May of the next year, 1747, La Jonquière again sailed for Louisbourg, but when he was only four days out, he was overtaken off Cape Finisterre by a superior British fleet under Anson and Warren, and was totally defeated after a brave resistance. In 1748, the Treaty of Aix-la-Chapelle gave Louisbourg back to the French. The British colonies were furious, New England particularly so, but the war at large had not gone severely enough against the French to force them to abandon a stronghold on which they had set their hearts, and for which they were ready to give up any fair equivalent. The contemporary colonial sneer, often repeated since and quite commonly believed, was that the important island of Cape Breton was exchanged for a petty factory in India. This was not the case. Every power was weary of the war, but France was ready to go on with it rather than to give up her last sea-link with Canada. Unless this one point was conceded, the whole British Empire would have been involved in another vast and perhaps quite barren campaign. The only choice the British negotiators could apparently make was a choice between two evils, and of the two they chose the less. End of chapter 3